0: The preaching of God's word is in Luke's gospel, chapter 22 and there verses 41 to 44. We've read from Matthew's gospel already and the broader context as well, but notice now these few verses which will fill our attention this morning, Luke 22:41 through 44. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, having exhorted His disciples, now we read, And He was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto Him from heaven, strengthening Him, Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. These few verses for our attention this morning, and as we're quite aware, the cross and the experience of our Lord is drawing near. And so, from the very beginning, there was the testimony from his own lips that, The Son of Man must be betrayed. He must be crucified and buried and remain under the power of death for three days. But on the third day, He will rise again. There's no mistaking the fact that our beloved Savior was not taken by surprise when He was taken in the garden. In fact, in Luke's Gospel alone, there are multiple instances of Christ both preparing His disciples for this event, And even reproving Peter, who would withstand his purpose of taking up the cross that his father had appointed. His eye was ever upon this moment. And as he says elsewhere, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this hour have I come. So in many ways, this portion through the end of this Gospel, as also in Matthew, Mark, and John, is the pinnacle of the purpose for Christ's coming. If we were to, to distill all things down to the main focus, this is it. Christ's coming to endure the wrath of God. As one calls this scene in Gethsemane or as Luke Merely describes it as this portion of the Mount of Olives. Christ was now under the shadow of Calvary. Cross was lifted, as it were, in his experience, and his whole soul is now becoming increasingly consumed with the agony of being made to be sin, the sin bearer, and the bearer of God's wrath. Notice the text itself. In the midst of preparing, what does he do? He not only calls these three disciples together to pray, but he himself goes. And so, in verse 41, he withdraws himself to greater seclusion and thus intimacy with the Lord. And all of us have known something of this, if we've known anything of earnest prayer. There are some things that we cannot, we dare not, as it were, express in the Hearing of others. In pride, of course, men love to pray in the presence of others. But when our souls are overwhelmed, even a child, a parent, a spouse may be too much for us to know their hearing of our deepest expressions and the sounding of our souls. And so Christ withdraws himself that he may more freely throw out, as it were, his heart's desires. And it says in verse. 41, that as he was withdrawn about a stone's cast, he kneeled down and prayed. Now, of course, the details can be picked up in other gospel accounts. We read in Matthew's gospel that he fell on his face. These aren't contrary the one to another, but they're picking up different emphases. Christ is humbling himself. Matthew's picking up this other aspect that he with great uh, concern is now casting himself upon the ground. But all of this is to show that Christ is indeed in earnest. And what is it that makes up His prayer? He prays, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thine be done. There is a depth here that is mysterious to us and many have made shipwreck upon multiple rocks. Some would say that what's going on here is Christ is, as it were, complaining against God, or Christ is really trying to say, I'm no longer wanting this to be done. Others have said that it's just Christ showing us by acting it out how serious this is. But the biblical record will tell us that Christ is truly and fully God and man in one person forever since the incarnation. And as the incarnate Son of God, His humanity, which is true, is now being faced with the reality both of He who is spotless and perfect and only delights in righteousness and doing His Father's will should now have the imputation of His people's sins consciously bearing upon Him. And with that, that He whose delight is the Father and the Spirit should now be consumed with the reality of God's great displeasure and divine vengeance. And so it is most appropriate that he should say these words. And yet, what a wonder that as his whole being as it were, as humanity is trembling at this and acknowledging this right and proper and natural desire, if there's any other way, let it be so. But, not my will, but thine be done. We see in here the full weight and force of agony before Him, and yet the full weight and perfect resolution to endure all that should be cast upon Him. Such struggling is realized in that verse 43 says that An angel appeared unto him from heaven, strengthening him. A man perhaps familiar to you, Rabbi John Duncan, so called because of his ability with Hebrew, a minister in our own denomination years back, said of all the angels that he would like to meet, he would like to meet this angel. What a wonder to think for a moment. A creature who worships God, the triune God, is now coming to the incarnate Son of God to encourage Him. Is there ever such a privilege as that? And yet, He's encouraged unto what end? To labor. He's not encouraged to then lie down and say, okay, I'm okay. He's encouraged and strengthened to press on. And so you'll notice the continuation. This angel comes strengthening Him. So it's not just to strengthen Him but actually strengthening, ministering to Him. And then it says that being in an agony, He prayed more earnestly. What happens when we're given spiritual help? We don't say, well, I'm helped now, and so I'm going to sort of dance through the fields. We're helped in order to labor with greater faith, with greater love, with greater zeal. And this we see in Christ. And as He strengthened His agony intensifies. And it says His sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. O brethren, who is there among us who could ever fully open the wonder of this and the pinnacle of it all on the cross? But what we have here is the glorious Son of God incarnate facing the most wretched reality of what it is to be made sin, counted sin, to be the sin bearer and to suffer the execution of divine vengeance upon him. One has said that paradise was lost among the glories and the joys of Eden, and it was only regained in the anguish of Gethsemane. Two gardens. The first Adam faltered and failed. The second Adam, though indeed he was consumed with the strength of All of this difficulty, yet He with strength stood victorious. So Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God incarnate, embraced the sin of His people and the curse due unto them. So consider then three things. Firstly, the real agony of Christ. Secondly, the appropriate agony of Christ. And thirdly, the loving agony of Christ which, if we'll consider by God's profit and blessing, our souls will be more enamored rightly, soundly, and continuously with our beloved Savior. So firstly, then, the real agony of Christ. You may be familiar with various Christological heresies. Some are very basic. Some are quite complicated. When you read them from the original sources, you'll realize that none of them were as it were, simplistic. So we have them simplified for us, and that's helpful for us. So we have people who deny that Christ truly came in the flesh. And John tells us in his epistles, of course, that the One who says that He came not in the flesh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, and so on, is a false teacher. But brethren, it's subtle. And it's often subtle. And this is what makes it often more, most appealing and attractive. So we come, for instance, to this scene and we're struggling to make sense of this because, of course, the one struggling in the garden is the eternal Son of God, incarnate. And there are several things that we realize about Him, right? You know, He as God is impassable. That is, God suffers no passions. He's not acted upon. He doesn't change. He doesn't grow. He doesn't weaken. But here we see one In propriety, truly struggling. So what do we make of that? Well, some would say, well, he's pretending. But we need to realize that the incarnation of the Son of God means that he assumed to himself a true human nature, a real human soul, and a real human body. And this, of course, was not made a divine body, a divine soul, it ever is and ever shall be, although now glorified, a human body and a human soul. This, of course, when we start to think about this, makes us realize there is a depth to the incarnation that we can never fully find out. There's a mystery to the hypostatic union, the union of both the human nature and the divine nature in the one person of Christ. And, We see this before us now. How do we make sense of what's before us? You know, He's the Son of God, so why is He struggling? Like, Let's get on with it. You know what's going to happen. You know the victory that's coming. So why would you put on this show? But this is to deny that Jesus Christ has truly come in the flesh. The Son of God truly took to Himself both a human body, and a human soul. Which means that He had human, and still has, shockingly as it is, in heaven, the glorified Christ is the Son of God incarnate still. But here, His humanity is face to face with all of what's upon Him. Though it is indeed a humanity that is spotless and fully committed, yet before Him, is the reality of agony. So not only is it possible that the Son of God incarnate, by virtue of the Incarnation, was able to agonize. We make sense of this, of course, because He really hungered. He really thirsted. On the cross, when He says, I thirst, He wasn't just saying this to fulfill some Scripture. He really was thirsty. When you hear Him cry out, He's not just putting on a show. He's really in agony when He's sweating drops of blood, it is a thing that is taking place of a real experience. What's the evidence of this real agony? Well, you look at this, and none of us would say this is just you know, a facade and a display, the way it's recorded. So He comes to His disciples and He says, you need to pray that ye enter not into temptation. He's withdrawn from them. And He kneels down and prays. Words are there, but notice as well, he needs to be strengthened. And in strengthening him, he is then brought to agonize more fully. Go back to Matthew in chapter 26, and you'll notice a few other features that Matthew captures for us to realize this agony is real. So in Matthew chapter 26, it testifies, it's recorded rather, of Christ's testimony in verse 37. He takes with him Peter, John, and James, sons of Zebedee, and he begins to be sorrowful and very heavy. Notice, inwardly, he's being consumed already with this anguish. It's gripping him. And he's being gripped as he's gripping as well the same. And then he expresses verse 38, my soul, do you see the word? My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. What's he saying? I am gripped with such overwhelming agony already that if I'm not sustained, I'm going to die. Brethren, we know something of this, if not in our own personal experience, yet through others who are gripped with such grief that they wither away. The psalmist speaks of this. That he's like, A potsherd. He's like a pelican in the wilderness. He can tell all of his bones. And we ought to remember this. There's a reality that experiences can so impact our souls that we become consumed. That's a real experience. And it is the real experience of the Son of God in the garden. The evidence is all apparent. He is overwhelmed with grief. We have to realize this. His human body had limits. His human soul had limits. And if you think otherwise or say, wait a second, He's the Son of God, you've misjudged the fact of the Incarnation. As He is divine, He is the infinite Son of God. And yet He, the infinite Son of God, has assumed to Himself a real Humanity. And the humanity is not made to be divine. The humanity is always humanity with real human experiences. And in the garden, what he's experiencing is the agonizing reality of being faced with the guilt and shame and punishment not just of a few sins, but of all of the sins of his chosen people which brings this real agony to an intensity such that he sweats great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Medical professionals tell us that even today there are cases, rare as they are, where such intensity of agony causes blood vessels to burst and, as it were, pour out through the pores of one's body. Here is the intensity of The real agony of Christ. But this brings us, secondly, to consider is this agony appropriate? You know, why is it going on? What's taking place that would make it so? Because we know people who experience agony, and yet as they agonize, it's really much about nothing or it's out of proportion. You know, they become consumed with this. We've been consumed with things that we've made far bigger. Than we thought they, than, than they actually were. And then when we go and talk with people or face the thing, we realize, oh, I was worried that it was far more uh, or far worse than it really is. Is the agony of Christ appropriate? Well, notice his prayer. In these few words, he expresses what's causing it. This cup. What is this cup? Notice, it's a cup for him. This cup from me. This is what's consuming him. The one thing consuming his attention is that there's a cup before him that is allotted to him that he must take up, that he must deal with, that he must answer. The cup, of course, is a portion. And so you think of a wine bottle and you pour it into a glass And then the glass is given. You think of how Christ had earlier mentioned a cup. And what's the language? Verse 20. This cup. You can't miss the parallel. In the Lord's Supper, He says, this cup is the New Testament in My blood. Now that cup to us is the riches of of salvation that was purchased by this cup that he must drink. His blood must be poured out. So the agony before him is appropriate because of the cup appointed to him. What is this cup? What does it consist of? Well, we know that it has to do with his death, as the Lord's Supper testifies. You can see that as well in John chapter 18. When he testifies of the cup that the Father gives to him, gave to him, appointed for him. John in chapter 18, and there at verse 11, Jesus testifies to Peter Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? You see, as he's being arrested, He's identifying the cup. This is the cup that I must drink. This is the cup the Father's appointed to me. All that's to be transpired now. All of the activities from the mockings and the uh, beatings and uh, the crucifixion. All of that is the cup that is mine. But of course, we have to ask, why is there this cup? And this cup we see, of course, is not because of any sin He has committed. Because everything on the cross, as we'll see, is the manifestation of God's curse. So you can think very quickly, cursed is all flesh that hangs on a tree. He's cursed on the cross. The darkness that covers the earth for the span of hours is mirroring the darkness of Egypt. His thirst, His withering body... All of the spectacle before Him, people forsaking Him, His isolation, His bearing reproof, all of this is an aspect of His being made a curse. But the question that ought to consume us is why? Because He's the spotless One. He's the righteous. My delight is to do the will of the Father. For this purpose I've come, to honor My Father, to fulfill His law. John says, I have need to be baptized of Thee. And Jesus says, allow it to be so now. For we must fulfill all righteousness. Try as you might, with the greatest of searching, you can never find the slightest deviation in word, in thought, in action of our beloved Savior Jesus Christ from the law of God. Now we can say in charity of one another, well, there's one who walks in accordance to God's law. And yet, if someone said that to us, we would be the first to say, well, not perfectly. But with reference to Christ, His every breath was in full conformity to the will of His Father and the law of God. His every word was perfectly, not just in the boundaries of God's law, but perfectly filling up the whole standard of God's law. We think ourselves, to have attained something, if we can say, well, at least I didn't cross the line. But the beauty of Christ's righteousness is that His righteousness fulfills all that's demanded. Every single detail is fulfilled. So how is it that this cup is given to Him? Well, we don't have the time to search out exhaustively. Brethren, in Isaiah 53, you have the key to it all. When it testifies, verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Christ is made, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be sin for us. And this is part of the cross, or the cup, He needs to drink. Now, we need to say a few words about this. This is not Christ, as it were, Experiencing the sins of his people through his own activity or volition. He's not made to be sinful. He's made to be sin, meaning sin is reckoned to him. It's on his account. And someone says, well, why would this burden him? Because, you know, he's not actually the one who's done it. That's true. Hugh Martin says, if we're to understand the reason that he so agonizes because of the imputation of the sins of His people, we can perhaps get at it by considering the real joy believers have because of the imputation of His righteousness. Is your joy real because of Christ's righteousness given to you? Do you feel happy and glad and full of wonder and delight that the perfect and faultless righteousness of Christ is credited to you does that not cause you real joy? Will it not be a cause of your endless joy for all eternity? Not your own personal righteousness, but the imputed righteousness of Christ to your account. Brethren, Christ is receiving the imputation not of abstract sin, not of abstract, legal disobedience, but the real, personal sins of all of His people. All of it is reckoned to Him. Now think for a moment, Christian, how the sense of guilt over one of your sins can consume you. It is astounding how bold and brash men and women are when they have no conviction, they speak high and lofty things against God and they say, well, I've sinned, but what's the big deal? I don't think I deserve hell for that. And so as soon as the Spirit comes and says, you need to deal with this. Your sins are abhorrent in the sight of God. God's wrath is going to be upon you because of this. The person who once was bold, chest borne out, and all of these things is now made to tremble to cry out, to be a changed person. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, you've done yourself a disservice. And in that, you see a little picture of this burden. Because Christian is gripped by the testimony of the book that he is dwelling in the city of destruction, and though his wife and children mock him and don't understand him and think it's just sort of a mental derangement, yet he's consumed for the burden on his back. I stand condemned. Brethren, the reality and guilt of our sins is now being placed upon Christ And though he himself has not committed those sins, he is reckoned as the guilty one. Sometimes people think, well, as an unconverted people, there's where intensity of conviction is. But 20, 30 years pass in the Christian life and you realize, the more I grow in holiness, the stronger conviction becomes. Why is that? It's because over years of growth, the soul is made to love the Lord's law more intensely, more fully, without any, sorts of, any sort of uh, previous qualification. And though it's imperfect, yet it's matured. And our souls are coming to delight itself in the law of God after the inward man, as Paul says. And so our sins that are committed after our conversion come with a heavier conviction to us because we love God's law and we despise sin. Brethren, whatever it is that you have attained as far as loving the Lord's law, you have not attained the level, the depth of Christ's love to His Father's law, which is, by the way, His own. He, as Paul tells us, was made of a woman made under the law. Whose law is it? It's His. He who loves the law. We don't have any comprehension of how Christians can say anything bad about God's law. How can someone speak against God's law and think themselves doing service to the God of that law? Christ loves His law. And brethren, He hates your sin. He despises your sin. He abhors your sin. Every one of them. And now He whose law it is, being brought under the law and His entire life fulfilling the law with gladness and diligence, is now brought to bear the very thing he abhors the guilt and the shame of lawbreaking. Your lawbreaking. Those things which, if the world were to hear about the thoughts, to hear the words spoken, to see the contorted faces in sin, to see the wicked smiles upon your face when you found delight in sin to see it all, all of that which would shame you and undo you and break you. Christ is stepping into it and the cup is held forth to Him and He's being told, this is yours. You must take it. You must take the guilt. You must bear the shame. You must endure what these, your people, have done. How can we not understand Why it is, he would say, if there's any other way, let it be so. And yet be astounded that he says, yet thy will be done. The cup appointed is the imputation of his people's sins, and yet it's more than that. The cup appointed is indeed the judicial vengeance against us for our sins, and the sword, as Zechariah 13 says, is to awaken now against the man that is his fellow. The execution of the fierceness of God's wrath, unrelenting, is now to be plunged into the very depths of the being of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the cup appointed. He who has always delighted in his Father. By the way, for all eternity, he who has only honored his Father's name, and when he saw others abusing his name, oh, what zeal consumed him! He goes to the temple, and there's the money changers laughing it up carelessly and casually carrying on in sin. And zeal for his Father's house consumes him. And he makes a whip and he chases them out, flips the tables over, and the men are astounded. Look at the zeal! What is that? It's love to his Father. I can't suffer it that my Father's name would be dishonored. I can't stand it that You would mistreat this blessed ordinance of the temple and the way of salvation made known in these signs and ceremonies. I can't stomach it. I can't tolerate it because my love to my Father is too much. Well, here now, He who only loves His Father is to bear the wrath and curse of His Father. And He is going to experience the entirety of hell for His people. How can we not say that it is anything but appropriate? We talk of men behaving like women as cowards, and yet we've seen women most courageous in the face of great difficulties. And yet, none of us has come to face this. Think of this for a moment. In hell, the individual sinner will be consumed with the wrath of God for his own sins. And the agony of the damned in hell is immeasurable. It demands everlasting reality because of the damnation that is justly given. He's made to bear the sins and the damnation of all of His people. It's not just that He's face to face with one of His people's sins and one of His people's damnation. He's facing it for all of His people. And He is feeling the weight of it Yet this leads us thirdly to wonder that this is indeed a loving agony. You can see it in the verse itself when he says, Yet not mine, but thy will be done. He gladly submits to his Father's will, though he must endure the shame, the pain and agony and the curse of the cross. He counts it His delight, as we'll sing in Psalm 40, to do the will of His Father. Notice there in Psalm 40 and at verse 6. We have here the testimony of Christ as it were upon the consideration of His incarnation. He says in in Psalm 40 and verse 6, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burn offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will. O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Hebrews tells us that this is meaning that he takes a body to himself To fulfill what the sacrifices of animals were but pointers to. I delight to lay down my life for my people, to do your will, to fulfill your purpose. What is this but his love to his Father? Notice historically, this was before this scene, John chapter 17, as he testifies of this great resolve and he testifies of with expectation. Verse 4, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He knows that though it is still becoming or coming to him, that it is as good as done, and he will cry out on the cross, It is finished. What does he say? I'm delighting in it. I want to do it. I'm earnest in doing it. And you see it in his petition as he resolves, Thy will be done. His love to the Father never wavered. It didn't bend unto the temptation of something else. It was locked on fully to the purpose of His Father. His humanity is shaken by the weight of what He must bear. Some of you have witnessed great, strength or great feats of strength. You see these strong men who train incessantly. And they have optimal rest and sleep and diet and nutrition. And they're doing all of these things according to great uh, uh, purpose and they come to these competitions and they bear such weight in their strength that they're trembling and you see their nose bleed and you see their eyes bleed and what are they doing every fiber every part of their system is bearing up the weight that's what's going on with christ every aspect of his being is now entering upon this weight and saying i'll take it Thy will be done. Why does He do it? Because of His love to His Father. But brethren, in John 17, we read of this, that His Father's will was for this to be done for the sake of His people. And so these things are bound up to one another. The love He has for His Father is likewise a love He has for His Father's people which has been given to Him. What would cause Christ to undergo such agony knowing that as he says to Peter listen don't you realize if I asked my father he would give me more than however many legions you can imagine of angels he would come and send this to me but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled how shall it be that the purpose of salvation shall be accomplished how shall it be that you would be brought into salvation One insightful writer says that when Peter sought to dissuade Christ from fulfilling this purpose, that what he was doing with his Word would have undone the world. If Christ had listened to Peter's advice not to give Himself, not to suffer, not to die, the whole of the world would have been undone. Condemnation guaranteed to every single person individual, but His love to His Father is a love to His people appointed by His Father. And so, brethren, here is an astounding thought. It's not exclusive. It's inclusive of others. But it's true. His agony and resolve to endure the agony is for you. His willingness to face the curse, the shame, the punishment, the judicial vengeance of an unmitigated wrath, an unrelenting wrath, poured out upon Him. He who loves righteousness to be now reckoned as the one guilty of sin and to bear the sword of divine justice upon Him in order to atone for sins was atoning, believer, for your sins. He wasn't doing this impersonally. He wasn't doing this for some general thought of sin. He was doing it for yours. Our sins upon Him. Our guilt upon Him. The punishment we deserve upon Him. And so his agony. It's not the fullest, but it is among the fullest of expressions of His love to us. We look at Peter, James, and John sleeping in the garden. And we shake our heads and say, how is it? That they couldn't for an hour watch with Christ. And yet, so soon as that comes out of our own lips, we have to shake our heads all the more at ourselves and say, why is it, how is it that I commit not myself more fully to Christ? My love to Christ, it so frequently fails and falters in the moment of temptation. Doesn't it? If you were to be brought up paraded in front of this congregation right now, and only the past 24 hours were considered. Would it not be shameful for your sins, for your unfaithfulness to Christ to be presented to this congregation? And then think for a moment. Why was it you weren't faithful to Christ? What did you gain out of it? You weren't avoiding something all that bad. You weren't gaining something all that good. Your love for Christ is weak. My love for Christ at times is shameful. Christ faced the worst that can be faced. The furnace of hell is now blazing before Him. All of the vengeance of God is now heated up seven times hotter, we might say, than normal so that anyone looking upon it would be consumed. And Christ's humanity would have fallen at this point, not in sin, but in being consumed outwardly were it not for the angel to support Him and to give Him strength so that He could continue laboring with the fullness of energy against these things. We would have seen it and instantly have been ripped apart. Christ looks at it, the weight and the heat of it already blaring against Him. And yet, for the love of His Father and the love of His people, He says, I'm ready to go. I'll enter into the furnace. I'll take it up. And why? So that My people will never once feel the slightest heat of hell. That My people will never have to face the wrath that is due against them because I will have answered for it. That cup which You give to Me, which now sits before Me with all of the curse for My people, if there were any other way, I would see it through. But since there is not, I take it because I love My people. Brethren, as we close, here is something that needs to be meditated on. Our culture does everything it can to fight against meditation. So as soon as you sit down with 20 minutes, you and I can't sit still. We have to find something to distract us. I wonder what's going on in sports. I wonder what's going on in Israel. I wonder what's going on in some nation I don't even know about. I wonder how you spell this word. I wonder about this, that, and the other thing. Our minds can't settle itself upon anything of weight and significance. And yet, were we to meditate upon the agony of Christ, not just in some superstitious and outward way, but considering the reality of what Christ was faced with and what He chose to endure, you and I would have our souls strengthened with such a wonder of love to Him whose love exceeds our own measurement. Set apart time with nothing else around, with the agony of Christ before you, and ask the Lord to fix your soul upon it and to cause you to discern the wonder of the zeal and the love of Christ for us. How can anyone think to endure that which caused the God-man to tremble? There are some men and women who start to think, well, yep, sin is sin and hell is hell, I guess if I'm not saved, I'm going to hell. If you were to meditate for a moment on the incarnate Son of God looking upon the furnace of hell open before Him, about to engulf Him, and He's saying, if there's any other way, let it be so. But if it's not, I'll take the cup. You would start to realize that your arrogance and pride will fail you when the furnace is opened unto you you will not be able to endure the reality of damnation. But believer, here is among, perhaps only to be joined with the cross itself, the wonder of Christ's love for you. And there's a mystery in the Christian experience that if we wish to grow strong, we actually need to gaze upon the strength of another. Not ourselves. The world is consumed with itself. Men posing as apes before others to show their muscles. Women dazzling others with all of their techniques of beauty and so on. And they love to be the focus of others' admiration, thinking that that's the way of strength, but only to be let down when their muscles fade, their beauty fails, All these things happen. And yet, if you and I were to be strong, it is to look upon the strength of another, namely Jesus Christ. You and I need to be consumed with this person. Because He, as Paul says, is our life. Christ is our life. He is our only hope. And here we see why. His agony is an agony of love for us. And our strength is not of ourselves. It's in Christ. Our peace is not of ourselves. It's in Christ. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's in Christ. Christ must be the full focus. And the full weight of your soul must be placed upon Him. Some of you as young people being raised in the church will face conviction and you'll start to think, what must I do? How can I get over this? How can I reconcile myself? And you need to come back to the Garden of Gethsemane and realize that there is the only hope. It's not your doing. It's not your Bible reading. It's not your better righteousness. It's Christ bearing the cup that you ought to have drunken. It's Christ taking up the curse that you ought to bear. It's Christ who alone is your hope. And Christian, will it not be your song for all eternity that worthy is the Lamb? Well, here we see the Lamb prepared and the Lamb seeing as it were the knife opened up unsheathed and the Lamb going forth to be slain that we might be saved. Praise and glory then. Unto the Lord Jesus Christ, would you stand with me for prayer?